Thank you, Brother Smith. Galatians chapter 6 this morning. Galatians 6, let us dismiss the children. They'll be heading for their children's ministry this morning. And we'll be in Galatians chapter number 6. We have put out a sign-up sheet. It was passed around in Sunday school. I think there's one in the lobby area as well for the brunch, Christmas brunch next Sunday morning. Be at 9.15, 9.30. We need to give that exact time, but I'd say plan on 9.15 so that if we have it at 9.30, you won't be late. And, um, but that'll, be, that'll help us, help us know. Um, I know I've talked about the fact that people have signed up for some things and we bought food based upon that sign up and people didn't come and, 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 it, and it throws things off. We want to be good stewards of the money that we have. And, and so the ditch that somebody will fall into is I'm not signing up for anything. Well, that's fine, but don't show up either. Uh, and you show up, you didn't sign up, that's not a good steward of, of uh, the money still. So just the point is, you've got time, pray about it, look at it, and see what you need to do. If you're going to come, just sign up. We're not charging for that, and, uh, but we, we will have to pay for it. But we want you to, to enjoy the opportunity of being able to be here for a Christmas brunch, if you so desire. Then we have men's prayer at 8, and we have our service at 1030 and uh, 5 o'clock. Uh, it's nice to be able to uh, show up in person to Jesus' birthday party. And, uh, and then uh, every time he shows up, oh, I just like to be where he is. And he's the head of the body, and he's therefore the one who has called us out to assemble. We're called out assembly is what church means. And uh, we do that at several different times. We have a few slots that are pretty definite. And then we have uh, other times where we gather, and he just says, whenever that is, don't forsake it. Galatians chapter 6. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on Galatians 6 told the story that has been told many times of the founder of the Salvation Army, General William Booth, who was unable to attend one of the international <clears throat> conventions. <clears throat> and so because he was unable to attend due to health issues, he cabled the delegates a message containing just one word. When it was time to look at what our founder and our leader has to say, the individual in charge with reading his letter stood up and said, General William Booth has instructed us with one word, others. And that was all that he wrote, others. Brother Rice, you'll enjoy this one, I think. In a Peanuts comic strip, I got his attention right there. Lucy asked Charlie Brown, why are we here on earth? To which Charlie Brown thoughtfully replied, to make others happy. After a moment, Lucy asked, then why are the others here? <laughs> See, how we answer Lucy and Charlie's question reveals a great deal about us. If people are here to make us happy... Sometimes the conclusion is they're not doing a very good job at it. And truthfully, we're probably not very good at ours either. In fact, life within the church is much the same, same way of answering that question. Why are we here? Why are they here? Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 2, this phrase, one another, bear ye one another's burden. The phrase one another is a key phrase in the Christian vocabulary within the church. Love one another is found at least a dozen times in the New Testament. 
Pray one for another is found in James 5.16. Edify one another, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 11. Prefer one another is Romans 12 and verse 10. Use hospitality one to another, 1 Peter 4 and verse 9. And there are many others. Paul adds here, bear ye one another's burdens. A spirit-led Christian thinks of others and how he can minister to them. And so in this section, Paul describes one of two very important ministries that we ought to share with one another. We're looking at one of those here this morning. Living and doing life with all of you as a church, it is enjoyable and it's meaningful. God knew what he was doing when he put that thought process together and brought it to fruition. We bring a measure of joy to each other when we're functioning in the body as we are. But we also can make life difficult and messy for one another at times. Church is messy. However, Jesus has made it clear to us that it is a mess worth undertaking. As Paul closes out his letter to the churches in Galatia, he lays some groundwork to help us clean up some of the messes and to handle some of the difficulties. And it's important for us to know because at some points we will all be a part of the mess-making crew and at other points we will all need to be a part of the cleanup crew. So I want us to look at Galatians chapter 6, but we're going to go back two verses in verse number 25 and 26 of chapter 5. And I want us to read down through verse 5 of chapter 6. So if I can invite you to stand with me, we'll look at Galatians 5, beginning with verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Seems like there's some conflicting or contradicting statements. We'll look at this, but I think there's a great point that Paul is making. Remember this, he's not just going random from topic to topic. It flows right out of chapter number 5. This morning I want to preach on this thought and there's a lot to it. So it may be a continuation which is fine with me because I want us to get it. But I want to preach on the thought of mending broken brothers. Mending broken brothers or being a part of the church maintenance team. Thank you. Please be seated. Paul gives us in this last chapter some things to help with church messes. But who he's talking to is not the one who has made the mess, but he's talking in chapter 6 and verse 1 with the ones who are to be a part of the maintenance team of cleaning up the mess. 
Now let's notice, and, and I'm, I've got an outline, but don't focus on the outline. I want you to just get these thoughts as we walk through here. The first thing that, that is glaring to me that Paul is dealing with is throughout the book, and as well as here, but we see here it's just a continuation of thought, and that is there's a danger of self-reliance. All throughout, he's dealing with the danger of independence, depending upon self. <clears throat> and the text, like we are looking at this morning, only confirms that I'm not weaving more into the tapestry of this series or my messages than Paul did in his letter. Paul's always exposing the dangers of pride or self-exaltation or self-reliance. It's one of those viruses that cause all the moral diseases that we will ever face in this world. And it's been the case ever since Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because they wanted to be God in their own life instead of trusting God. And that's the plague. That's the problem in all instances is will you trust God or will you take the place of God in your own life? We talked about in the men's prayer about Joseph. The same is true of Mary. You know, there's this concept. It was a song, country song. I, I don't know the song. I've never heard it. Um, uh, Brother Cherry has to sing it to me every now and then to remind me how it goes. But a baby changes things. It didn't for Mary. And she walked with God before and she was a humble lady before and a humble after. It didn't change Joseph. We saw why God chose them. They were right with God. They had favor with God. And they continued that afterwards. And Paul is constantly pointing out the subtlety but the serious danger of self-reliance. Rather than trust God, you subvert and take the place of God. And it's going to be the problem, it's going to be the battle until the final outburst of human pride when it is crushed at the battle of Armageddon. Why would Paul write to spiritual people? Because that's who he's writing to in chapter 6. Why would he write to spiritual people to bear the burden of others and then spend most of this paragraph warning spiritual people against the danger <clears throat> of their own pride? Well, one basic moral issue is well, how to overcome the relentless urge of the human heart to assert itself against the authority and the grace of God is really what we're up against. How are we going to keep our own hearts from, from giving in to our own flesh and letting self be pampered and letting self be lifted up? And before we ever look at how Paul addresses the church maintenance program, you got to remember how he described his pastoral labors in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 24. And it was about seven years ago I preached a message on that verse. Paul says, not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. See, when Paul wrote to the, the, the Corinthians as well as to the Galatians, He's saying our aim in everything that we're doing, Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 15, it's for your joy. 
is so that you can have joy, not joy from just being you, but joy from your relationship with Jesus. The battle against pride, the battle against self-exaltation in our hearts is a battle really for joy. What's going to keep the clear, clean breezes of joy, peace, and goodness blowing through the Canaan family? We will only keep the windows of our fellowship opened up to the spirit of joy by recognizing, by battling with the wind slamming forces of self-sufficiency, pride and independence within our lives. See, the sin that keeps joy from blowing through finds its roots where every sin will find its roots in pride. No wonder Jesus again he declared, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. So we find that Paul is, all throughout this book, is talking about the danger of self-reliance. But a second thought is that burden bearing, it is the matter of the law of Christ. Verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of of Christ. The main point of Galatians chapter 6 and 1 through 5 is given to us in a general way in verse 2. Here's the general. Bear you one another's burdens. This is what God wants you to do. But he gives it to us in a specific way in verse number 1. And he says, if a man be overtaken with this kind of a burden, and he calls it a fault, it's very specific in verse 1, the burden he's talking about. Verse 2, it's a general, generalized burden. So it has to be understood in light of verse number 1. So bear ye one another's burdens, and so you're going to fulfill the law of Christ. If a Christian brother or sister is weighed down by some burden or threat, he's saying, be alert, be quick to do something to help. Don't let them be crushed. Don't let them be destroyed by that kind of a burden. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus said in Matthew 23 and verse number 4, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. He says don't increase burdens. Make them lighter for people. Some of you wonder what you're supposed to do with your life. Be a part of the church maintenance program. Here's a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than if you would become a millionaire ten times over. Develop the extraordinary skill for detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to make them lighter. Why would I do that? Because it fulfills the law of Christ. That's an odd phrase in this book, in chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. But here he says, if you bear one another's burdens, you fulfill the law of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So here, having been freed from the curse and the burden of the Mosaic law, just to be burdened down with the more radical law of Christ, who wants to do that? Well, the difference is, and here's the difference, because Paul knows what he said. Because remember, they would have read this in one sitting. They would have heard well, he said, we're not under the law. We were freed from the law. Now he says, fulfill the law. But the difference is, is that Moses gave us a law, but could not change our hearts so that we would freely obey it. 
Our pride and our rebellion was never conquered by Moses. But when Christ summons us to obey his law of love, he is offering himself to slay the dragon of pride within our life and change our hearts and empower us by the Holy Spirit. And thus it fulfills his law. That is why even though Christ's law is more radical than the righteousness of the scribes and that of the Pharisees, Jesus can also say, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. See, the law of Christ is easy because when you find that you're weak, you'll find he's always strong. It's easy because he produces the fruit of love. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet Christ liveth in me. See, Christ never commands us to do anything He wants uh, us to do and expect us to do it on our own. Never. Therefore, every command in the law of Christ is really a call of faith. God is saying, will you trust me? See, through faith, God supplied the Spirit. Galatians 3 and verse 5. Through the Spirit is where we tap into the character and nature of God called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 and verse 22. And through the fruit of the Spirit, primarily that of love and everything flows from that, is how we fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians 6 and verse 2. Therefore, if you trust Jesus, you're going to fulfill His law of love. You'll devote yourself to lifting the burdens of others. Now, notice in verse 1, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault. He's talking here about burdens of faults. Paul had given one specific kind of burden and how to help a person bear that. Verse 2, again, he says, bear ye one another's burdens. And he's taking that same thought and he's making that point, but he's stating it in a general way. Verse 1 is specific. Verse 2 is general, but they go together. Now, we tend to think of burdens in the sense of people's sickness, unemployment, loss of a loved one, loneliness, rejection, and the people who bear them as victims, victims of sickness, Loss of a loved one, loss of employment, etc., etc. And that is right. And if we're full of Christ, we'll be about the business of bearing those kinds of burdens as well. That's why I say so often when tragedy strikes, it's a great blessing to have a church family. But Paul shows us in verse 1 that the burdens that he's referring to include trespasses. That's what the word fault means. It's a trespass. Those who are oppressed by a sin. And it includes that individual who is sliding down the slippery slope of their sinful choice. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, Verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens. The word burden is the idea. Anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith. It's one, one thing that's, um, it's, not, it's, it's difficult at times to watch people come in 
and serve the Lord with joy and gladness. And that's how the psalmist says that we ought to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with joy and gladness. And watch the joy and gladness dissipate over time. It's a burden. You're experiencing a burden. Something's threatening to crush the joy of your faith, whether a tragedy that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt and judgment. A person who is sinning needs help. That's what Paul says. And what does he say to do with that one? In verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault or transgression, ye which are spiritual, restore. The word restore means to make things right. It's the same word used in Matthew 4.21 when it talks about repairing torn nets. See, sin is a breakdown in the machinery of our life and it has to be repaired. If you find someone with a breakdown, do what you must to restore the person to good and godly running conditions. In other words, nobody who lives by the law of Christ and in the power of Christ can say about some other person's choice and some person's burden of sin, well, that's not my business. I don't have to add that to my burdens. It's their choice, their sin, their problem. But I've been around Canaan long enough to learn that that is exactly that the attitude that some may have towards sin in the church, while there's a great many other that have the attitude that Paul is talking about, and that is we ought to bear one another's burdens in order that there might be a restoration so that people can get back to the one who can do something ultimately about their sin burden. I pray we can continue to cultivate an atmosphere at Canaan where love is so great that we take the breakdown of sin seriously. And we serve each other as merciful mechanics. Ultimately, only Christ can forgive that sin and deliver a person. Primarily, our job is to admonish, rebuke, warn about what? Wrong attitudes, habits, and plans that somebody may have that is causing someone to be overrun and being crushed where the joy is escaping their life. And then we point the person to the great mechanic who can fix any broken down jalopy in our church family. This is the main point that Paul is making. Bear each other's burdens, specifically take on the trouble of helping people realize their sin and repair it. Now, if it seems easy for you to help a person bear the burden of sickness, unemployment, loss of a loved one, loneliness, or rejection, but it's too hard for you to bear the burden of confronting a person because of sin, meditate on this thought. A sinful attitude or a sinful habit is much more harmful to a person than any of the other burdens that I mentioned. So why wouldn't you really care? If we really care about a person's ultimate welfare, we will confront them with their sin and comfort them in their trouble. But see, oftentimes people try to comfort others in their sin. And Paul says, 
And that's not how it works. Jesus didn't do it that way. The Holy Spirit doesn't do it that way. The church can't do it that way. Wouldn't it be great to belong to a family of believers who loved each other so much that they simply could not look the other way while a brother or sister hardens into a habit of sin? Let's be that family. If we're not, we do not fulfill the law of Christ. You can see how people do not think in terms of genuine Christianity. When Paul's just talking about these things, it's like people only hear restore. But they don't hear what goes into restoring. You break a bone, you go to the doctor, fix it. All right, but I got to reset your bone. Well, I don't want you to reset my bone. Well, we can't really fix it. I just want you to give me a shot. Or better yet, just give me a pill. Or better yet, just give me a sticker. And sooner or later, the doctor's going to say, you get whatever other opinions you want, but you, 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 you can't demand it to be repaired without doing what is necessary to repair it. Here's another thought. We're going right back to it, but this is what Paul's doing. He's speaking of the danger of pride. Having made the main point in verse number one, we're dealing with people who are bogged down with a sin problem. Whatever that sin might be. The affair was found out. Her Gossiping was uncovered. His pornography came out. Whatever it might be. Whatever, whatever. It's a sin issue that is overtaking them. And the rest of these verses, verses 1 through 5, Paul is warning against the danger of pride, the danger of pride in those who are to take on the burden of correcting and restoring a fellow believer. He's saying attention. It's not a warning against correcting. Paul's not warning against admonishing. He's not warning against restoring a person. He's actually war warning against doing it arrogantly. Unlike some of us, Paul's not going to throw out the baby of confrontation with the bathwater of pride. Paul doesn't say you are all proud and sinful, therefore you have no business pointing out anyone else's sin. He didn't say that. He says, since you all struggle with pride, therefore make every effort to humble yourself when you point out someone else's sin, because that's what you've got to do. It's like the Matthew chapter 7, judge not. Some people don't know that there's other words in that chapter. That's all they see is don't judge. Jesus isn't saying don't judge. He just says you don't want to judge in this capacity, in this mindset, with this attitude. But you're going to judge. Everybody judges. The red light, what does it mean? Uh, you, you're a hypocritical judger. Everybody judges. You've got to judge. But Paul is simply saying that the dirty bathwater of pride's got to go. Let there be clean and healthy baby uh, um, 
of loving, humble confrontation must stay. Just change the water. So let's then look at the rest of this time together, listening to Paul's instructions on how to knock out these legs of, uh, of pride. Because that's what will get us in trouble. In verse 1 he says, you that are spiritual, before you take on the burden of confrontation, you who are spiritual. Now, that simply means that you should be chapter 5 and verse 18, led by the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 16 and verse 25, you should be walking by the Spirit. Chapter 5 and verse 22, you should be tapped into abiding, communing with the Holy Spirit and experiencing the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a reference. He's not saying you who are spiritual, referring to an upper echelon of Christianity, but he's referring to normal, Spirit-filled Christianity. Spiritual people are ordinary people relying upon an extraordinary Holy Spirit who produces through them love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. In fact, there is a link between chapter 6 and verse 1 and chapter 5 and verse number 22. He says in chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of... All right. I'm glad we got three there who see it. Let's try it again. Verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. And so it's tied to being filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the way to avoid pride as you confront a brother about their sin is to act only in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look to yourself, he is saying, lest you succumb to the same temptation. I'm not going to do what they do. I'm not going to commit that sin. Well, you may not commit the same sin, but you may commit the same root, which is pride. You may let yourself be filled with pride, just like they have gratified themselves. So he says, don't rely on yourself. Don't let self be exalted. Remember, you and I are a basket case of sin apart from God's gracious Holy Spirit. Don't ever get over that. That's why total reliance on Him is what produces gentleness or meekness. Meekness is that twin sister of humility, which is the opposite of pride and boasting. You want to boil down what he's been talking about through the whole book, and especially here, that which will salvage the person that is overcome with sin is humility. That which will protect the one who is doing the restoring it's humility. It's humility. You know, people who have the mindset, well, you know, it's, it's going to be this way or I'm out of here. It's just pride. It's pride. Humility changes everything. Changes everything. What are we to do? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Just humble yourself. And so Paul is saying, examine yourself to see if you're relying on the spirit and meekness like a needy child or whether you're puffed up with self-reliance. And I know it's tough. No one really signs up and says, I want to be the confronter. Because you run the risk. 
You run the risk of someone who's already in trouble or you're not confronting them. And a person who's not humble but self-reliant is about protecting self. They don't know how to turn the tables. Didn't they do that with Jesus? They're trying to find fault with Jesus. So don't think you're beyond people finding fault with you. Somebody begins to tell me how bad I am. I'm thinking, man, you left a lot off that list. I can give you a lot worse than that. But how is that going to deliver your soul? I don't like the way they came to me. I don't think people like the way Jesus cleansed the temple either. But the issue isn't, if you want to be delivered, isn't how everybody's doing it. Is what is Jesus saying about it? He talks about assertive pride and timid pride. It's still about pride. Verse 3 to me is the most radical attack on pride in this passage. Notice verse 3. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. See, Paul's assessment of why some people won't confront a brother taken in sin or they do it without meekness It's not because they lack self-esteem. That's how a lot of people would say it today. We just don't have self-esteem. But Paul says that really your problem is that you think you're something when in fact you're nothing. Now he's speaking morally here, not physically, because he's talking to people who physically exist. But he's saying, apart from the special grace of God in us, we amount to moral zero because of our sinfulness. Why don't you do the confronting so you can help with the restoring? Well, if I confront, I'll lose friendship. Well, what will the friend who sticks closer than a brother do? What does Jesus do? Well, you just keep in that sin. I died for it. Not a big deal. Why don't you wallow in it? No. Because when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it always results in death. Someone says, no, I don't confront people because I'm afraid. I, 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 I don't confront people because I'm afraid. It's not because I'm proud. But, but Paul's trying to get us to see if we're not willing to protect the cause of Christ, and that's the issue. It's not the cause of myself. It's not the cause of this. It's, not the, it's the cause of Christ that's most important. And Isaiah 51 verses 12 and 13 tells us that the fear of man It may feel humble, but it's really rooted in pride. And that's what the Lord was saying in those verses. See, there's a lot of preachers that will not tread in the area that may, that might hurt feelings. See, I I don't preach for love offerings. I don't preach for people's favor and attention. I'm preaching for the cause of Christ. I know what it's like to wade into trying to help people. I I have literally thought, yesterday it actually crossed my mind, and I thought, I haven't had this thought in a while. What would it be like to be like many of the preachers in this county and do nothing with the flock that belongs to God 
just show up and just preach some sermons. I thought, that sounds easy. I'd be getting fatter than I am just sitting around just eating snacks and drinking eggnog. And, and some people think that's all preachers do anyway. And but I'll tell you what would happen. People would be drowning in sin. I know what it's like to jump into somebody's life when I didn't even choose it to try to help because they're on a crash course headed for destruction only to try to help like the great physician who gives down to the lesser physician, the chief shepherd, passes down to the under shepherd. Here is how they can be helped only to try to assimilate and try to help. Then you become the bad guy. I understand that. I understand it before I get it, got into it. I understand that the ones who would say, I understood this at nine years of age when my grandfather who was pastoring in Winchester, Virginia would say, those that say the loudest, I love you, preacher, are the ones who can be most fickle if it doesn't go their way. So Paul is warning against assertive pride, but timid pride. I've said to the deacons before, hey, pray, I'm, I'm struggling. I know I've got to preach this. I'm struggling. And uh, just, just because I understand, I just understand sometimes sheep don't get it, especially when they're, you know, and then all they heard was judge, you know, or something like that in then I've preached and got done with it, and Brother Autry has said, that wasn't hard. There wasn't anything hard about that. Well, I don't think anything is really that hard if you'll trust God and obey. It's, it's still, I'm still working on the song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It just makes sense. But not to the one who's been overtaken in sin. So the Word of God remains constant in this. Our failure to fulfill the law of Christ is because we think we're something when we're really nothing. But then when God who is merciful and Christ enters into our life and He enables us to love, we ought not start talking about self and I in this, but we're talking about Christ. And then he says in verse 4, Test for one's own work. Here's a test. But let every man prove his own work. Let every man prove his own work and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Notice verse 5. For every man shall bear his own burden. Well, verse 5 sounds like it's the opposite of verse 2. Verse 2 says, bear ye one another's burdens. And to me, verse 4 sounds the opposite of verse 3. Verse 4, but let every man prove his own work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone. Verse 3, for if a man think himself to be something, when he's nothing, he deceiveth himself. So what are we, are we or are we not supposed to boast in ourselves? And 
And so here it is, just briefly, I want you to see, because this is part of going through a passage. I believe verse 4, I think what he's saying is, look at it again, verse 4, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. He's saying, in measuring the value of your own achievement, do not take the work of others as your standard of measurement. Don't get puffed up because a brother falls lower than you. Our pride loves to see people fall where we have stood. There's just something about it. Well, you know, at least I, I did, did better. Everybody remembers in school when you got a grade, and it maybe wasn't the greatest, but you saw other people got worse than you did and made you feel better. And that's what he's talking about. Paul says, stop feeding your pride by comparing yourself with those who sin. Don't measure your moral achievements by those of others. Measure them, test them. That's what he's saying here. Let every man prove them. Measure, test, prove them by the laws of Christ. Then whatever there is in you to boast about, it will not be because of another's inferiority. Now verse 5 is not a contradiction of verse 2. Verse 2, bear you one another's burdens. Verse 5, for every man shall bear his own burden. What he's saying there in verse 5 is the reason, verse 5, every man shall bear his own burden. It's the reason, it's the ground, it's the foundation from verse 4. Verse 4, but let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself and not in another. In other words, he's saying don't ever try to lighten the load of your own sin by comparing yourself to a failing brother or sister. Why? Because you're going, to give an account, you're going to bear your own load. You're going to give your own account at the judgment seat of not your brother, but Christ. So when the final assessment comes and we're all measured by the law of Christ, no one will make your load lighter by being worse than you are. You're going to bear your own load that day. We often hear the plea, well, I, I, I was as good as Jack, or I was not, as worse, than, was not worse than Jane. And all that's going to fall on deaf ears when you stand before Jesus Christ. So don't bolster your pride by comparing yourself with others. You're going to bear your own load. Now, here's some practical steps and we're, we're done. Who should bear burdens? This text says those who are spiritual, spirit-led. He's not asking now which ones of you would that be? Would you raise your hand? He's saying that every Christian ought to be spirit-led, spirit-filled, but you want to make sure that we are connected to the Spirit of God. Number two, when should we bear one another's burdens? Whenever anyone is overtaken in any fault or sin. The word fault literally is a falling aside, a slip or a lapse rather than a willful, willful sin. So it's not waiting until someone has crashed, but it's when you begin to see mindsets shift. And then here's a third question. How should we do it? And he gives us, I think, in the spirit, in verse number one, of meekness. It's tied to the Holy Spirit. He's not less confrontational. And sometimes it is with... Um, Great conviction, but it's in the sense of recognizing there's hope. There's hope for anybody. 
the key to it for the one who's in sin, humble yourself. The key to it, those who are on the maintenance crew of the church to restore people who are being overcome with sin, humble yourself. You may want to ask yourself, if people are constantly trying to challenge me, and if I'm avoiding people who should challenge me, which side of the equation are you on? We should be as as concerned as Jesus You know, if we're not protecting the cause of Christ in the spirit of meekness, we might handle it in a way that James and John did when they saw some villagers in Samaria reject the Lord. And and they said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? It kind of sounded like some um, hot-headed junior high boys who like to play with pyrotechnics. We can just take care of them, Jesus, and And Jesus just rebuked James and John, admonishing them that they really had no idea about what Jesus is about. That's why this matter of a clique and and not just cliques, what we like, but I've said and will keep on saying, um, that's why we're not going to pamper and cultivate an atmosphere of drama. Because you're undermining the church of the living God And you're on the side of the authority of hell. And Jesus said, you're you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong side. And by the way, the the, the drama aspect is manipulation. I want to manipulate to get my way. When I manipulate to get, this is mine. This is what I do. This is who I am. I see 1 Corinthians 12. It's a body. You're a member. Stick to your place in the body. Primarily, humble yourself. Anything else is really causing abuse. When there's drama that's being allowed, I want it my way, I want it this way, and this is how it's going to happen. When you're not the leader, you're not the one who's making the decision in that area. It's called drama. It's called abuse. And I'm not going to tolerate that. People abusing our leaders and teachers and, and others. and it just There's no place for that. So we'll confront it. That's what I said before, what Bible preaching doesn't do, church discipline. And if you think church discipline is only taking somebody off the roll, you've misunderstood half of the New Testament. But when you don't humble yourself, your answer is, I'm just going to take my toys and I'll go. That's option one. Or you can humble yourself. You don't get saved until you humble yourself. Nowhere will you find a person experience revival apart from humbling yourself. So why would we do less than that at Christmas? When Christmas is all about the picture of Jesus who humbled himself in heaven to walk this earth in humility, to humble himself, to die on the cross for our sins. And we want to act contrary to Jesus Christ but expect his blessing it's not going to happen and so Paul was very clear may we be as well let's stand together please